If you've got your Bible and you want to follow along this morning, um, we're going to be in Genesis 18, and we're going to cover half the chapter, verses 1 through 15. Genesis chapter 18, and verses 1 through 15, and the title is Friend of God. Friend of God. Uh, I was watching TV a few weeks ago, and uh, watching a ball game or something, and I saw an advertisement for um, a, a new show. Now, I haven't seen this show. Have, you all, have any of y'all seen this advertised? It's called God Friended Me. Um, it's, it's a show on CBS. Anyway, hadn't, I hadn't watched it or anything, but I looked it up on, uh, on, on Wikipedia, and it just said uh, it's the story of a, of a young man who is an atheist, and he is friended by God on his phone. So he gets a friend request from, from God. Now, I can pretty much tell you without watching the show that that show is not anywhere near <laughs> scripturally correct. Or right? I don't really have to watch the show to, to tell you that. Uh, but this idea of, of, of men and women being the friend of God or God being our friend is something that we often hear taught uh, in our churches. Uh, we hear it taught in our Bible studies that, that we can be the friend of God. We, we even write songs and sing about it. We haven't, we don't sing this much anymore, but we used to sing a song in this church a lot. I am a friend of God, which used to make me a little uncomfortable because it, it's, it's almost a little presumptuous, right? <laughs> to think that I can be uh, a friend of God. But yet we hear it taught and everything, uh, in our churches. But is that really possible? Is it really possible that you and I can be a friend of God? And if, and if it is possible, what does that mean? What does being friend of God really mean? You know, I would say that most people would, would like to be, like that television show, we'd like to be a friend of God in the sense that God just kind of, like an old friend that just pops in every once in a while to give us advice or to, to point us in the right direction. I mean, most people would like to be or have God to be that kind of friend, but is that what that, is that what it really means to be a, a friend of God? Is that all there is to it? That again, He just pops in every once in a while when you, when you need Him and then He pops out. He doesn't really require anything from you or anything like that. What does it really mean? Is it possible? Two questions we want to answer today. Is it possible to be a friend of God, you and I? And if it is, what does that entail? Well, in Scripture, there are a few times in Scripture where, where men are called friends of God. So it is possible to be a friend of God. And if we want to know what that means, then what we have to do is go to those Scriptures and find out why they're called a friend of God and let the Scriptures teach us what that, uh, what that really uh, means. Now, there are... I'm going to pick out three places. There's actually a fourth, and we won't go there today. I'll mention it here in just a minute. But there's really three places where men are called the friend of God. The first one is with, with Moses. In Exodus 33:11, the Bible says this, The Lord spoke with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. And then Numbers 12, 8 God said this, and these are the words of God Himself. It says, with Him, talking about Moses, I speak mouth to mouth clearly. He's saying, I'm not speaking in a vision. I'm not speaking, I'm not just putting thoughts in His head. I'm speaking mouth to mouth, words to words. And not in riddles, 
but clearly, and he beholds the form of the Lord. See, there's something about Moses that's different from a prophet. God would speak to a prophet, and the prophet would, would speak God's words. But he says, we're, we're talking back and forth. See, when God down, kind of downloads to a prophet, there's not a lot of back and forth going on. He doesn't call them a friend of God. But with Moses, he said, I speak to him face to face, mouth to mouth, clearly, like a man talks with his friend. Now see, this is something, if you study the life of Moses, you see over and over and over again, is this ongoing conversation with, with God. And, and by the way, we don't, we don't have to, when we talk about friendship with God, we don't have to reinvent the term, because friendship with God is exactly the same as friendship with, with somebody else, another man or another woman. Friendship is friendship, right? So, so what this does, it just reinforces what we already know about friendship, and that is friendship requires regular, intentional communication. Let me say it again. It, re- it requires regular, intentional communication. You don't, you know, if I haven't talked to someone in 20 years, it's, it's, it'd be, I'd be hard-pressed to call them a friend, right? Uh, or at least a good friend. It requires us to be intentional about communicating with this other person. So what we see in the life of Moses is this. He didn't just talk to God once in a while, and he certainly didn't just talk to God when he needed something. Let me say that again, because that, that should indict a lot of us. He doesn't just talk to God every once in a while. He doesn't just go to God and say, hey, I need to talk to you because I, because I need something. You see, to be called a friend, you maintain regular communication with someone. It's open communication. It's back and forth communication, and that's what we see in the life of, of Moses. The next time in Scripture we see somebody call it being called a friend is in the case of the disciples. And, and Jesus is going to call them friends, and he's going to, this is a really interesting Scripture because it tells us some requirements of what it takes to be called a friend of God. John 15, 14 through 15, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He said this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you slaves anymore or servants anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. So here, when, it, when we talk about being called a friend of God or a friend of Jesus, we see there are two prerequisites or two requirements. Number one is obedience. This is very clear. You cannot be a friend of God if you do not obey His commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The the opposite of that, by the way, is if you don't keep His commandments, you don't what? You don't love Him. Jesus said, you are my friend if you keep my commandments. The opposite of that, if you don't keep my commandments, you're not my friend. John said, if we say, if any man says that he knows him and doesn't keep his commandments, he is a liar. So if you don't keep his commandments, you don't love him, you don't know him, and you certainly cannot be his, his friend. So that is a prerequisite of being a friend of Jesus. The second thing we see in this is this idea of two-way communication. See, being a friend of God, Jesus said, you're my friends because I've told you everything the Father has told me. So being a friend of God involves not, not only just us talking to God, but also Him talking to, to us. And by the way, 
once again, that just reinforces our idea of what we know friendship to be. Friendship is not a one-way street. Friendship is me talking to you and you talking to me and we're, we're going back and forth. It's the same thing with, with, with God. Now, we come to the third one that we're going to point out. By the way, there is a fourth one, but it, it really does, I don't think it pertains, and that is Lazarus. You remember uh, when, G, when uh, they, they send a messenger to Jesus and they tell Jesus, hey, Lazarus is sick. And he tells the disciples, our friend Lazarus, y'all remember that? He says, our friend Lazarus sleeps. Um, obviously, he was a friend of Jesus, but we're not, that really doesn't, I don't think, necessarily pertains today. So there is a fourth one. We want to focus on these three. The third one, of course, is Abraham, which is where we are today in Genesis. Second Chronicles 27 says this, Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Isaiah 41.8, by the way, these are the words of God Himself. God is saying this, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So Abraham himself is called a friend by, by God Himself. And of course, in, in the New Testament, it refers back to that in James 2.23, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So that's kind of referring back to those scriptures in, in the Old Testament. Now, of course, why do I bring all this up today? Well, in today's chapter, chapter 18, it is one of the most remarkable incidents in human history is recorded for us. And it is an incident where, where God himself comes and visits a man. And then that man, and we're going to see something next week in, in the second part of this chapter that we've never seen before. You see, we've seen God speak to a man before. But this would be the very first time we've ever seen a man intercede with God. We've never seen... Remember, he told Noah, this is what I'm going to do. Noah kept his mouth shut, didn't he? He didn't say, well, God, do you really need to do that? He didn't, inter, he didn't talk... He didn't, he didn't intercede or converse with God. He just, whatever God said, that's what he did. Abraham's actually going to intercede with God, and we'll see that in the second half of this chapter. So this is an absolutely remarkable incident here in chapter 18 that's recorded for us. The reason we're going to kind of slow down today and talk about, just cover the first half, and talk about being the friend of God is because there are some principles in the first half of this chapter that if we want to be the friend of God, there are some principles here that we need to see, and of course we would need to so let's, let's read the first few verses, Genesis 18, uh, 1 through 3. And it says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of them. Now, we will find out a little later, one of these men is the Lord, and the other two are angels. Okay, so we'll just kind of give you a preview real quick. So there's three men... One of them is, is, is the Lord, and the other two are angels. So it says, He lifted up His eyes, and He looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of them. And when He saw them, He ran from the tent door to meet them, and He bowed Himself to the earth. And He said, O Lord, if I have found favor in Your sight, do not pass by Your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree." while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. 
So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and he said to Sarah, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and he took a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now, there, so Abraham is, it's the heat of the day in, in, in the land of Canaan or Palestine, which is extremely hot. And so people in that day, there's no air conditioner or any of that. So in the heat of the day, they would retire to the shade. So his, his, his tent probably had some kind of little porch or a little awning un, under it. So he's just sitting there in, in the shade of that little porch or that awning, and he's just waiting for it to cool down. And of course, he sees three men. Now there are, there's some debate as to whether he knows who these men are. Are, are these just three strangers who happen to be passing by out in the middle of nowhere? Or does he know, does he just know that this is the Lord and, and two angels? Now there's some debate uh, to that. Some people will say, well, he really doesn't know it at the very beginning. And he doesn't really realize it till later when they actually begin to tell him. You remember a little bit later they're going to repeat the promise uh, to Sarah to have a child. And some people say, well, that's when he, he realizes it. Others will say that he recognized them immediately. And I, I tend to agree with that. I, I believe he did recognize them uh, immediately. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, remember, go back to chapter 17, which we talked about last week. The Lord, in the very beginning of that chapter, in verse 1, it says the Lord appears to Abraham, actually appeared to him, and said, hey, I'm gonna, you're going to have a son, and you're going to have that son by, by Sarah. Now, what you need to understand is between 17 and 18, very little time has passed. Remember in chapter 17, he says a year from now, right? Well, here in chapter 18, Sarah does not know she's pregnant. And we all know it takes nine months to have a baby. So at this point, the most that's probably passed by is, is, is just a few days. In fact, we'll see that here in just a little bit. In fact, the, the, the Lord is going to say, about this time next year, I'm going to come back and you're going to have a son. About this time next year, which is a, is roughly a year, right? So there's very little time has passed between chapter 17 and chapter 18. So he's just seen the Lord. So if the Lord appears to him in a form similar to what he did in chapter 17, he would obviously uh, recognize him. Secondly, I want you to notice the way he acted when he saw him. Verse 2, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door. He didn't just walk. He ran from the tent door and he bowed him. You, you remember uh, 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 back when we studied the parables in the Middle East, it was kind of considered shameful for a man to run. Y'all remember that? Because they kind of had to hike up their skirts and because everybody wore dresses back then. He had to kind of hike up his skirts and it wasn't considered very manly for a man to run. But yet he gets up and he runs to meet them and then when he meets them, he bows himself to the earth. He prostrates himself on, on the ground. Now, I don't know about you, now maybe that was normal back then, but it, it looks like he knows these are some very special guests. The third thing to notice is his lavish hospitality. I like what he does. First thing he does, he minimizes what he's going to do. Verses 4 and 5, Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel. He said, just let me get a little bit of water for you. Let me just get a little morsel of bread, right? 
That, that's kind of what I, you know, he, he doesn't say, hey, man, come in, I'm going to fix you a big meal. He says, I'm just, just let me, let's take care of you. But then what he actually turns around and provides is this huge, extravagant meal. The three seas of flour is, I forget what the, the, uh, the translation is there, but it's, it's basically enough to feed a small army. It's several gallons of flour. So he, he's saying, man, and by the way, there would have been plenty left over, but that would have been, you know, obviously they could have taken care of that with the family, and there's a lot of people that Abraham has to support, so he's not worried about that. So they break this huge, they, they, they bake this huge quantity of bread, they, they butcher a calf and it's prepared, curds and milk. This is the very best that he has, and he prepares a lot of it. And, and so this is a lavish, extravagant meal that he gives to them. Now, and then by the way, while they're eating, notice what he does. He just stands there to be their servant. Do you need anything? You need some more sweet tea? More cornbread? You know, what do you, what do you need? He doesn't, he doesn't get in there and partake. He stands aside as their servant. Now, could that have been normal behavior in that day? It, possibly it could have been. But everything about this looks to me like he knows these are some very special guests. So I think he knows right off the bat who these people are. Now, we don't know that for certain, but I can tell you that if there were any doubts at all, those doubts are about to be dispelled because they know things that only God would would know. Look at verses 9 and 10. And they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. And so the Lord said, so this is one of the men that's speaking, is the Lord himself, and says, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, keep in mind, it's customary in those days, and by the way, it still is customary today in some cultures in the Middle East, for a woman not to be seen or heard while men are being uh, eating or being entertained. They just stay in the background. So that was what she was doing. That would have been customary in they. She would have cooked the bread. She would have done everything they needed. But she would have stayed out of sight. She would have stayed in the tent while they were, were eating. So she does that. Her, that's the custom in that day. So she stays out of sight. But I'm sure Abraham's running. He runs in the tent. He runs over here. She can see his excitement. She knows these are some. There's something going on here, right? I mean, everybody would know there, there's some special guest here. So her curiosity gets the best of her, and so while they're eating and talking and everything, she's listening uh, from you know she's got her ear to the wall, so to speak, and she's listening to what they're they're saying. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. So she hears him say, I'm going to be back in a year, and Sarah is going to have a child. Now Sarah's 89 years old, and the Bible tells us right here she's past the time, or the way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. Now, basically what that's saying is she's past menopause. Okay, that's, that's what it's saying. If you go look it up, that, that it's, she's past menopause. She knows. See, they're, they're not dumb back then. We always look back and, 
And, and, and we look at people way back then and we think, you know, did they understand all the, yeah, they understood it all. They understood what, you know, they may have not have called it menopause. They might have called it the way of women, but they understood once you got past a certain point, you didn't have children anymore. They got that. They understood that was an impossibility. So when she hears him say, I want to come back in a year and Sarah's going to have a child, she laughs. And it is a laugh of unbelief. Don't, you know, some people, I, I see some commentators sometimes try to make Sarah look good and, oh, she was just, no, she, it was a laugh of unbelief. She, in that moment, she just could not believe. That was, a, it was the craziest thing she'd ever heard. And she literally laughed out loud. It is a physically impossible thing that this man is saying and the Lord is saying and she just cannot grasp it. She can't believe it. And she laughs in, in un, unbelief. Now, there's a couple interesting things here. I find it very interesting that Sarah's response mirrors her husband's. You remember in chapter 17, the Lord appears to Abraham and says, Hey, Sarah is going to have a baby. And in verse 7, it says, Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? You see, Abraham set the example. And there's a lesson in that for men and women who live in a, a marriage and we try to do it God's way. We try for that man to be the leader and the woman to submit to the man and we try to do it God's way. There's a lesson there that men, you set the example for your wife. The way you respond to God in many ways will be the way that she responds to God. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He set the example in unbelief. He set the example by laughing. And so when it came to Sarah, she just did the exact same thing. Because he had already set the example for her. Look at verses 13 and 14. So the Lord turns to Abraham, not to Sarah, turns to Abraham and says, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything... Too hard for the Lord. You remember in chapter 17, he comes to him and he says, I am El what? Shaddai. I am the almighty, powerful God. I can do anything I want to do. And now he's referring back to that. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for El Shaddai? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Verse 15, but Sarah denied it, saying, I, I didn't laugh because she was afraid. By the way, that to me, that validates the fact that that was true unbelief, that she was skeptical, right? Because the very fact that she's, she's afraid when she's called on it. I mean, she, she knows, I mean, that's exactly how you, if we had laughed in unbelief and the Lord said, why'd you laugh? You'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, we'd be afraid, right? Because we're being called on it. She was, and she was afraid, but he said, no, you did, you did laugh. Now, I want to give you something about, this is very interesting, and we're going to look at this over the next few weeks. At that moment in time, about one year out, actually, let's just say about three months out from getting pregnant, she is laughing in unbelief. But in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, in the, in the passage that we call the Hall of Faith, the Bible says this, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now that is an amazing scripture. Here she is on this day and she laughs. But somewhere between this day and about three months later, something is going to change in her and she is going to believe. 
And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that that faith gave her the power to conceive. Does everybody see that? By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive because she considered him faithful who had promised. So something is about to change. Everybody with me? So yes, this was unbelief, but that changes. I, I, I don't know about you, but I get encouraged by that because a lot of times I have trouble believing. And, it, and what that shows me is that very quickly things can change. Very quickly, God can do a work in our heart and take us from unbelief to to faith to believe the impossible if we will allow Him. That is a wonderful example right there, and I just wanted to point that out. Now, next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at the rest of this chapter. And we're specifically, we're going to look at this man, Abraham, who intercedes with God. Like I said, up to this point, we've never seen this before. Nobody has interceded with God. But Abraham is going to do it concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. But before we leave, I want to look at a few principles that we've seen so far that help us with being a friend of God. Here's principle number one. I'm going to give you four of them. Friendship with God only begins when we are reconciled to God through faith. In other words, friendship with God can only begin when you are saved. This TV show that's out there now, uh, uh, whatever it was called, uh, what they call God friended me, the idea of an atheist and God friends him. Folks, that ain't the way it works. You have to be saved to be a friend of God. You have to be first reconciled to Him. See, Scripture teaches, and we've talked about this over and over and over in this class, Scripture teaches that by nature, when we are born in this world, we are children of wrath. We are hostile to God. We are enemies of God. We are alienated from Him. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 says, You were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So apart from God, apart from being saved, we are, the Bible says we are hostile to God. Now, you may go out there today and find people who say, well, I'm, they're not in church, they're not believers, but they would say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not really hostile to God. You know, that, that God thing is fine. If y'all want to, you know, I don't hate God or anything. I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an enemy of God. Let me, let me tell you, what this passage is speaking to applies to everybody who's not saved. It, it applies to the people who pay their taxes and the people who cheat on their taxes. It, it applies to the law-abiding citizens and, and, and people who, cre- who do criminal acts. It applies to both of them. See, the point is, it doesn't matter or whether or not you feel hostile to God. What matters is how God views you. It's not about how you feel. It's about he, how He feels. And He says, you're my enemy. You're hostile to me. You're alienated from me. It doesn't matter if you're... There's, listen, there's people sitting in church pews today that are hostile to God because they're not submitting to Him. They're not giving themselves to Him, right? They haven't been saved. They may be in church for 30 years, but if they've never given their heart to Jesus Christ, the way God views them is says, you're my enemy. You're hostile to me. So it's not about how we feel. It's about how He feels. And Scripture says that's very clear. You see, our sin separates us from God. 
And so the very first thing we have to deal with if we want to be a friend of God is we have to deal with our sin problem. It has to be dealt with before we can be reconciled to God and before we can even think about being his friend. Now, for Abraham, this has already happened ten years ago. You remember uh, back ten or so years ago, he's declared righteous by God in Genesis fifteen six. It says he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So he's been reconciled to God already through faith. So he that part of that part of it has been taken care of. Therefore he's ready to be the friend of God. He's in a position to be a friend of God. And for you and I, there it's no different. Romans 4:16 uh, says this, that is why it talking about salvation depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, talking about Abraham, to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. I just love that about the Bible. The plan has not changed at all. From Abraham to us, it's exactly the same. If you want to be the friend of God, the first thing you have to do is you have to take care of the sin problem. And the sin problem for us is taken care of through faith in Jesus Christ. We've said it before. Abraham believed in the one who was to come. We believe in the one who has already come. But it's exactly the same thing, right? Faith in Jesus Christ. Here is the point that is absolutely foundational. A person must trust Christ as our sin bearer before we can even entertain the thought of developing a friendship with Him. Somebody that says, yeah, God's my friend, but yet they don't know Him as their Lord and Savior is a liar. That That's not even possible, and we need to understand that. Number two, friendship with God requires being available. Friendship with God requires being available. Listen, I said this before, we don't have to redefine friendship. We all know what it is. Right? We've all got friends. We understand what friendship. And the one thing that we should all know inherently is if you want to be a friend with somebody, it takes time. Right? And friendship with God is not an exception. Abraham is sitting in the door of his tent. He's available. He's not running around. He's not dealing with the, with the cattle and the sheep and the, and the ordering of supplies and doing all that. He's just sitting there and he's available. Okay? Now listen. I understand completely that that was a different culture. The clock wasn't even invented, as far as I know, at that time. Maybe the sundial or something like that. It's going to be centuries before anybody invents a watch, much less things like televisions and cell phones and, and things that, that, that just distract us and pull us away. But that does not change the fact that if you want to be somebody's friend, you've got to make time for them. And if you want to be God's friend, you've got to make time for Him. There's just no way around that. This isn't some kind of pop-in thing. Hey, God, I need something from you, and then back out to whatever you were doing. You have to make time for Him and, and spend that time with Him if you want to be His friend. Listen, we'd all say this. If you're married today, if you're here and you're married and you only spend uh, a, few minutes to week, a few minutes a week together as a couple, but you spend hours with other men and women... I can guarantee you, your marriage ain't going very well. It just won't be going very well. If you want to cultivate intimacy, if you want to cultivate friendship, you have to just carve out time and spend time with that person. More time than you're spending out in, out in the world, right? In the same way, if we're so busy in our life that we're spending minutes reading a devotional, 
spending minutes praying, just spending a few minutes, then we go outside the door and we literally spend hours upon hours with, with people and things that are trying to seduce us. So how do you think that's going to go? Anybody? Who are you spending your time with? Where are you spending your time? What are you spending your time in doing? That'll be, a, I tell you, there's a direct ratio with your friendship, your intimacy with God, and the amount of time that you spend with Him or away from Him. And if we're not spending the time we should, I can guarantee you our relationship is stale and it's not growing. Number three, friendship with God requires being hospitable to God. You know, hospitality, if you open the Bible, it's, it's an amazing thing. The Bible talks an incredible amount about hospitality. It encourages us to be, us to be hospitable, not only to the people we know, but it even encourages us to be hospitable to strangers. Did you know, by the way, that one of the requirements for an elder in 1 Timothy is they be hospitable? An elder in the church, if you're going to be an elder, if you're going to be a leader in the church, not only do you have to know the Word, be able to teach the Word, and, and, and all these other things, one of the things is you have to be hospitable. You, know how, you have to be able to open up your, your home and your life to other, other people. We, we know that, but have you ever thought about the fact that we should be hospitable to God? Sometimes we think about hospitality so much about other people, but we also need to be hospitable to God. You see, someone who is hospitable opens their home. They, they open their life to other people. And if we covet God's friendship, if we want to be friends with God, shouldn't we, shouldn't we want to make Him welcome? in our life, in our home, in the, in the things that we do, in the things that we have. See, Abraham, there's several aspects of hospitality that Abraham demonstrates. I, I want to point these out. First is eagerness. We go back to those verses again. Just point of, notice, he, he sees them and he runs. He, he goes into the tent. To, he says he goes very quickly. He went quickly into the tent. He said, Sarah, quick. Then he runs out to the herdsman. And he says, prepare it quickly. Everything, he's eager. This isn't like, man, take your time and maybe, you know, these guys will just move on. No, let's, let's, we got to get it done. Somebody here is very special. So it's, there's an eagerness here. And, and by the way, don't forget, you're talking about a hundred year old man in the middle of the heat, in the middle of the day. That's how eager he was to go get all this stuff done. So again, there's an eagerness to his hospitality. Now here's the question. Do you and I have that same eagerness? when it comes to fellowshipping with God? When it comes to that time we're going to go spend with Him in His Word and in prayer, are we that eager? Do we run to it? Or, like some of us, has our enthusiasm died? Is it more of a duty? See, spending time with God, being hospitable to God, it shouldn't be a duty, it should be a delight in our life. Which one, where are we when it comes to that? See, one of the things that really strikes me about Abraham is how he was completely focused on ministering to his guests. There is no even one hint in this story about Abraham thinking, I wonder what I'll get out of this. Right? He's washing their feet. He's bringing things to them. When, they, when they're eating, he's standing by the way, serving them. It's all about them. It's all about the Lord. I'm ministering to the Lord. It's not about what's in it for me. But wouldn't you say that most often if we sit down to a devotional 
if we sat down to a prayer time, wouldn't you think most of the time it's about what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this devotional? What am I going to get out of this prayer time? See, but what's in it for God? Are you ministering to Him? See, in Acts 13, 1 through 2, it says this, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, as they ministered to the Lord. They ministered to the Lord. Let, let me tell you something. You may say, well, what does the Lord need from us? Absolutely nothing. He's perfect. He's got everything you'll ever need. He needs absolutely nothing from you. By the way, the same way the Lord didn't need Abraham's food. He didn't need Abraham's food. He could have, he could have, it, it probably wasn't even overly, he's the Lord, right? I don't know how all this, the Lord appearing in human form and whether he was hungry or not. But the man could, he could have made his own food, couldn't he? He didn't need to wait for Abraham to do all that. He didn't need Abraham for that. The same way he doesn't need anything from us. But you see, that's not the point. Friendship is always a two-way street. It's always a two-way street. And the Lord is pleased to accept our ministry. He's pleased to accept our worship. He's pleased to accept our conversation or whatever it is that we use to minister. The same way He was pleased to accept Abraham's hospitality. Are we ministering to God in our quiet time? Or is it all about us? If you've lost the eagerness of meeting with the Lord, maybe go back and think about that. It's not all about me. It's not all about what can I get out of this. It's also about what I'm doing for Him. See, the fact is, you know, I spent this weekend with my, uh, with, with my family and one of my boys. We were down in Orlando and spent a lot of time together. And that's just, man, that's just awesome. You know, at this time in your life, I mean, just spending time with your children and, and just fellowshipping with them is just the best thing in the world. Don't you think God wants the same thing with His children? I mean, that's what a father wants. Just wants to spend time with their children and just fellowships. Not about all me telling him what he needs to do, but him talking to me. And that's, God's just like that, folks. And we need to understand that. And, and like Abraham, we need to be eager to meet with the Lord. Number three, effort. You, you cannot read this passage without understanding that, that Abraham put effort into this relationship. We just saw it. He's running around. He's, he's, he's making preparations. He's telling everybody to hurry up. He's, it's all about those people and their needs, right? He's attentive to that. Now, a lot of people will say, well, you know, Derek, friendship should be spontaneous. Friendship should be really a, a good friend. It's just effortless. Let me, there's nothing wrong with spontaneity, by the way. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with having a friendship that, but let me, I'm gonna tell you, be honest with you, relationships require work. There's just no way around that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with spontaneity, but relationships, we, we can go back to a marriage. I can tell you right now, if you're not putting effort into your marriage, your marriage ain't going very well. I can just tell you that for sure. You, it takes effort. It, every day is not just, you know, apple pie and everything's great and, I mean, some days, you just want to kill them, right? And, 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 and you just gotta, right? I mean, it's not like that every day. It takes effort. It takes effort. You see, it's so easy for us to get busy and let these things just pull us away into other areas and all this. And you look up one day and, and the, the relationship is on the wane because you haven't put the time and effort. And it's the same thing with us and God. 
Sometimes you just have to say no to some things. Sometimes even good things. Sometimes even pleasurable things. Sometimes even enjoyable things. Say no so that you can make time for your relationship with Him. You have to think about that. You have to think about how can I foster my friendship with God and put effort into that. Sometimes, by the way, you just kind of have to set goals. If you don't know what else to do, just set some goals and start meeting those goals. And again, that that's almost sounds like the total opposite of spontaneity. And, 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 you know, and it sounds, well, that don't sound like a lot of fun. Sometimes it's not. You know, I've seen couples, and we've all known couples who, whose marriage is on the rocks, man, and they got no intimacy, they got no... And, and you just think, well, that's, it's irreparable. And then they just sit down and they start working. They just go to work. And over time, they put... Right? We've seen that happen. See, sometimes with God, it seems like we're so far away from Him. There's no spontaneity. It's no fun. There's no freedom. Sometimes you just got to buckle down and go to work. You just buckle down and go to work. And you set time and you put in the effort. And God rewards that effort with His friendship and His intimacy. Number four, last one. we got to close here. Friendship with God requires obedience. We said that right up front. John 14, 21 to 23, I'll read another scripture. This is also Jesus saying this. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And I will love him, and here we go, make myself known to him. I'll manifest myself to him. I'll, I'll, and then he goes on, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. See, that, that requires obedience. Jesus said, you're obedient to me, I'll make myself known to you. I'll let you know who I really am. That's friendship. That, that's friendship of the highest order. I'll come and make my home with you. But that requires obedience. Both in John 14 and John 15 that we read earlier, it, it, Jesus makes it absolutely clear, clear that obedience is a requirement to have a friendship or relationship with God. By the way, I bring this up. It's significant to me. Do you remember what happened at the end of chapter 17? Anybody remember? That was the circumcision. If you flip back, Abraham was obedient in circumcision, and immediately in 18, God comes to him. That's not a, that, folks, that's not an accident. The very fact that God follows up in appearance, God follows up with all of this, is immediately behind the, the obedience of Abraham. That's not an accident. The same requirement is for you and I. If we want the Lord to abide with us, to make Himself known to us, then we have to walk in obedience to His commands. If we're not in obedience, then how in the world can we expect friendship uh, from Him? And by the way, it may not be easy. We said it last week. A- Abraham's obedience and circumcision, there's no way that was easy. Sometimes our obedience is not easy, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still required. God may be asking you to break off a relationship that you know and He He knows this is not good. This is an improper relationship. You need to break it off, and you don't want to. Are you going to be obedient? He He may be asking you to do something that's completely out of your comfort zone, and you don't want to do it. But are you going to be obedient? He may put a finger on a sin in your life that you love. And, and, and listen, we love, there's, sometimes we love our sin. Don't, don't anybody ever tell you that all sin is dirty and nasty and it looks bad to us and we all, sometimes we love it. 
We absolutely love it. And we don't want to get rid of it. And he's saying, that's got to go. Are you going to be obedient? See, without if you're not obedient, you can't be his friend. You can't have that relationship with him that he wants to have. I ran across this quote. I want to point this out. I love this. The extent to which we block God out of certain areas of our lives is a measure of the distance in our relationship with Him. I want to put that up there. The extent to which we block God out of certain areas is a measure of the distance in our relationship to Him. We'll conclude here. In this world, you know, it's considered an honor to be a friend of somebody really important. To be a friend of the president or a friend of the governor or or a friend of Pastor Henry, right? I mean, any of those are real big deals, right? But let me tell you, there is an honor which we have that is so much higher. We literally have an opportunity to be a friend of God. I mean, what, who else? You know, we have that opportunity. It's unbelievable. It's almost mind-blowing. It's almost hard to believe. It's almost hard to grasp. But you and I, little old you and I here in Walkala County, literally have an opportunity to be called a friend of God. We begin that friendship by being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. And then we cultivate that friendship by making ourselves available, by being hospitable toward Him, and by growing in obedience to Him. Next week, we'll turn to the last half of the chapter. And as I've said a couple times, we'll look at Abraham's going to do something that nobody else has ever done, and that is intercede with God. It is an amazing uh, passage, and I hope you'll be back. Let's pray. Father.